Thank you for listening to part two of episode two of She Speaks Volumes. In this episode, we are exploring the darkly surreal world of Christine de Pizan's The Book of the City of Ladies. Written in 1405, the book is a catalogue of notable virtuous women. If you have not read the book or need a refresher, you can listen to an excerpt in part one. And I've also included the reading of several tales for the bonus content for this episode. After I read the book of the City of Ladies, I struggled with whether I should include it in the series or not. On the one hand, as Simone de Beauvoir noted, it was the first time a woman picked up a pen in defense of her sex. On the other hand, I doubt even Quentin Tarantino could invent the horrific tortures inflicted on the heroines included in this collection. I spoke with distinguished professor Marilyn Desmond to understand why de Pizan wrote the book of the City of Ladies and how her social environment informed the importance of the virtue she advocates. This is, after all, virtue in the time of chivalry. Marilyn Desmond is the author of several books on Christine de Pizan and life in medieval Europe. Links to her books are in the show notes. And just a comment on this episode. I recorded the interview over Zoom and there is dropout on the audio intermittently, but overall the sound quality is good and I hope you'll find the interview interesting enough to forgive the flaw. Thank you very, very much for agreeing to speak with us about the book of the City of Ladies. Uh, my first question is, why, why did she write the book of the City of Ladies? When Christine came to write this text, I think a lot of things were going on. She had been part of, by the time she came to it, she'd been part of the kind of literary textual world of early 15th century Paris for almost a decade. Um, and at that point, she was very aware of all these different textual traditions. She'd had a lot of time to spend in the Royal Library, which was filled with both French translations and Latin texts. And she was very much drifting on the arguments of the day. And one of the powerful arguments um, that she would have been very aware of from a lot of different texts is what's called clerical anti-feminism or medieval misogyny. And that's what the book Matthaeolus represents. It's, it's originally a Latin text that had been translated into French and then translated and uh, recompiled in the third edition in French. But it, it reiterates a very standard medieval clerical which was intended to discourage members of the clergy from getting married by listing all the faults of women. And one of the major, major faults of women that is part of that tradition is that they're wanton, they, they, they can't keep secrets, um, they're foolish, they're spendthrifts, etc. I mean, it's a huge litany of anti-feminist propaganda. And at various points up in her earlier work before she wrote The City of Ladies, but I think at this point, there's um, several things kind of going on. She had just written a book called The Mutation or the Mutability of Fortune, where she sort of covered an awful lot of historical material about the rise and fall of kingdoms. And that was a very masculine tradition. And I think she saw from, you know, the production of that text, I think she saw that she needed a place to write about women. And the engagement and the argument that she stages with the anti-feminist tradition gave her that space to retell all these women's stories. And first point in her literary career where she really does create a lot of space to talk about biographies of women. I think it's also a moment where she's coming into her own as a writer. 
examples that she can claim this kind of authority to review what it's like to be a reader of these texts and then what that means for her as a writer. And that's in, in a few chapters of book one that's staged very, very dramatically as the section you read illustrates. So prior to writing the book of the City of Ladies, she had written books about, about governance and politics and warfare. Well, the, the books on governance and warfare come later. Before she related, she had first been a lyric poet, which she, you know, in her biographical, autobiographical text, she describes as, as a young widow, age 25, and she starts writing poems about being widowed and losing her husband. She realizes there's no model for a female lament like that. And then her writing poet brought her to the attention of, you know, a wider audience and particularly an aristocratic um, set of patrons associated with the royal house and Parisian nobility. And, and that gave her room to engage in this argument about the romance of the rose. And then she also got at a certain early point, she got a kind of commission to write a biography of Charles um, the King who had been deceased by then and who had been the patron of her father and the cause of her whole family's move from Venice to Paris when she was five years old. So she first emerged as this lyric poet whose work got enough attention that then she got patrons who then sometimes commissioned and sometimes exchanged a kind of gift or a manuscript given to them. So she's really targeting a fairly elite audience and her works, interestingly enough, a lot of her works, the works produced up through the first decade of her writing, middle, middle of the first decade of the 15th century, are often combined in what are called omnibus collections, where she, she has multiple, you know, very, very big, thick manuscript like Harley 4431, um, which is in the British Library, which is a huge, thick manuscript of all her writing and presented to the Queen. So she seems to be definitely targeting a similar audience in all of her texts, or she wouldn't put them all together <laughs> and present them to one, you know, sort of powerful patron like the Queen. Uh, and I think that's an interesting sort of issue because it implies that the audience for the Book of the City of Ladies is the same audience um, that she had envisioned for that proceeds immediately, which is the mutation or the mutability of fortune, which is a very historical text and a kind of survey of world history, um, which envelops her own misfortunes um, in the narrative itself. Would she have been an influential writer? Like, would people have read her and, and adjusted their own behavior accordingly? I think she definitely was widely, widely read during her lifetime. And her manuscript, I and mean, the way medievalists measure influence is by manuscript survival. And so you look at a text and you say, how many, this is all before the printing press. So, so all texts, all books circulated in handwritten artifacts, which we call manuscripts. And her texts survive significant number of manuscripts. Not all of them survive in the same you know, quantity. I think there's about 25 copies, handwritten manuscripts from the 15th century of the 80s. Some of them are in these omnibus collections and some of them are in um, single manuscripts. The Book of the City of Ladies was translated into Dutch 
in the early 16th century. It was translated into English after, after the arrival of the printing press in England, and it was printed and circulated in an early printed book in English. There's, so, so that's that she definitely had an impact. Her other texts, like the Epista Otea, which she did write before the, the City of Ladies, I think survives in more like 60 manuscripts. So you can get a feeling she was read and recopied and her manuscripts circulated pretty much through the 15th century. And then a very significant number of her books make it into print in French. And some there's several that are translated into English and appear in English. Um, and it would appear that things like her book, her, her, her writing later during, you know, sort of period after the City of Ladies is produced, her writing becomes more and more involved in the issues of the Hundred Years' War and diplomacy and warfare and the, the sort of diplomatic issues of achieving peace between the French and the English who are fighting the Hundred Years' War at this point. So I think those, those texts definitely had impact. And things like the book on warfare, um, Charity Willard Cannon, who was one of the earliest Christine scholars in the 20th century, prominent Christine scholars, argues that the book of warfare actually had a significant long-term influence on writing on warfare and what we call silent inheritance, where, you know, the, the not be cited or named, but the ideas continue to infiltrate later theoretical writings on warfare. And that was that was Charity Cannon Willard's take on, on the Book of Warfare, which Charity um, both uh, edited and translated into modern English. So she was a very widely read, very influential author. How much her books would have, you know, perhaps like changed women's behavior is a little harder to measure, of course. I mean, we don't have the kinds of records um, individual readers so much, but there was a way in which her argument about women circulated very widely in, in you know, say the first decade of the, of the 15th century French, but then there is an ongoing kind of argument about women, debate about women, debate about the status of women that goes on in France and, and other parts of Europe and England into the century. And so, you know, she seems to be at the start of this contentious set of issues about the debate that, that you can't say that she was like the only instigator, but she participates in it and I think has a major role in the direction it went in the 15th century. A lot of the virtues <clears throat> that Christine describes in the book of the City of Ladies are like pretty deplorable to to a, a modern day feminist. So how can we understand that in our context? Okay, that's an excellent question because on the one hand, early Christine scholarship, early, I mean just a generation ago because this is, um, Christine's poetry was given a certain amount of scholarly attention, but most of her prose writings like this were only really put into a kind of scholarly analysis about 30, 40 years ago. And, and so one of the earliest arguments among scholars was, is she a feminist or is she not a feminist? And can you then, can you even talk about feminism in the 15th century, et cetera, et cetera? She's very much a writer who belongs to a particular era, and she's working within a highly regimented notion of gender 
especially in elite circles in 15th century, you know, sort of European culture, which is at this point dogmatically Christian, obviously. And her take on virtues is, on the one hand, it, one of the ways I like to think about it, on the one hand, it seems like it's a, a, a sellout, like, okay, women should be chaste, and that disproves the anti-feminist tradition or women should be prudent and that disproves you know all of the um, complaints about women's foolishness but what she's trying to one way to look at it and one way I like to look at it sometimes is trying to argue that if women can be the better version of what Christian thought thinks women could be then they can eat their they can defeat the structures that are restrictive and oppressive. She's not in a position to be radical. There are no other women writers in the circle that we're aware of. She's very much part of a dialogue with, with very, very authoritative male writers all the time. And while she does have women patrons, the queen is her patron, she also has to be very cautious in a way about how she stages what women can be. And so I think that, you know, what would seem deplorable to us has to be perhaps seen in context as, as basically the, the, the best case scenario for achieving some aid and authority in a world where um, there are very, very restrictive notions about what makes a, a good Christian woman and what makes a good wife. And for women who didn't enter the event, a standard expectation is marriage. There isn't exactly a, a third. And, and so the status of wives, and she's very concerned about the status of wives. She mentions domestic violence frequently. The status of wives to her is really important to get right in order for women to have some autonomy. She makes some very cynical comments about widowhood that make me think that she's much more subversive um, she does sort of say, well, you know, women who are badly married can pray that they outlive their husband and um, can enjoy, you know, widowhood. I mean, she says that in a kind of, it sounds very tongue in cheek, but it makes you wonder about, you know, what her view of the kind of world she's imagining is. She can't imagine a totally radical world where where women are completely autonomous and have the agency to chart their own Destiny. How was the Book of the City of Ladies received by the church? It wasn't content because it's very Christian. It doesn't, especially because the third book of the City of the Ladies contains all of these um, saints' lives, which saints' lives were part of standard dogmatology in the period, and saints were supposed to be the individuals that you modeled yourself, your own Christian um, devotional life on. Who could argue with building of a city? to protect women and then inviting, you know, the Virgin Mary and all the saints into the city. That is the structure of the book as a very theologically acceptable premise. She got into a lot more of a kind of argument when she circulated some letters about a 13th century allegory by two different poets called the Romancers. And she argued very aggressively about the depiction of women and the depiction mainly of um, of desire in that text. And there, you know, she ran up against pretty powerful men, but there she was also defended by members of the clergy because she, she, she's always taking the Christian high ground. Um, she's not 
there's never a point at which she undermines Christian ethics. And she subtly emphasizes them in favor of women, but that's not in itself going to be a problem at this point. She lived in a time when the church would have pretty much had a stranglehold over everything. They were still burning women at the stake then, right? Well, yeah, and that's what happens to yeah. Joan of Arc in, in, in a few decades after the, the, the you know, within, within 30 years of the composition of the City of the Ladies. And Christine's very last poem is a poem about Joan, not about her death, because the poem's written before Joan's death. But yeah, I mean, the stranglehold is probably too strong a, a word, perhaps, for, I mean, what a lot of scholars of religion, of medieval religion now sort of hypothesize, is a certain amount of maneuverability within various devotional practices, various kinds of institutions, various conflicts between various institutions. I mean, the church was always an organizational structure, and, and there were times when there were enormous problems, organizational structure. Um, and without going into those in, in great detail, she's very aware of that. And so it's not, it's not necessarily a, a vision of uh, you know, women totally subservient and, ins and, and enslaved. And one of the interesting things is that by the late Middle Ages, which was period, there was a kind of devotional set of possibilities for women that they could really follow a very fervent role in the church and in some ways subvert male clerical power. I mean, that's work about, you know, sort of the intensity of female devotion that is very, very, has been coming out in the last 30 years, which Carolyn Walker Bynum is probably the most exemplary, that suggests that, you know, it's a dynamic structure. I mean, the church would like to control women, but women weren't exactly completely controllable. And one of the ways women could gain a lot of authority is by being very devout participants in medieval theology. And that gave them a power that they wouldn't have necessarily as wives or daughters and, and, and so forth. So I wouldn't say, I mean, yes, women, women could get in trouble at any point and did, but there was an awful lot of give and take and a lot of ways in which women could subvert power and subtly, very subtly, and gain some kinds of agency. And the figure of Christine is a perfect example of, I mean, her texts stand as perfect examples of you know, both the agency and the restrictions of the period. I want to go back. You mentioned the, the saints. When I was reading through those stories, I mean, they are horrific. They are. I was wondering if we can talk a little bit about how, when I read those stories today, I'm just seeing the violence against women. I don't understand its context beyond that. Okay, great. Now that's, a, again, that's an excellent response because there's a kind of, to book three. It's very visual. It's very, very specific in its catalog of the tortures of these saints. Again, she doesn't invent any of this. <laughs> um, all of this is received tradition. And, and, and the hagiography that she's working with there is very interesting because by the early 15th century, these stories are a millennium old. They all come from the second, third century of the, the, the common error. So it's the early years of Christianity when Christians were still being persecuted by early 15th century Paris. 
there's no persecution of Christians and, and no Christians are being asked by pagans to show their allegiance to the gods and denounce Christ and all of the kind of stories that go along with that. So, so she's working very received material and in many subtle ways, she is, again, she's talking about, she narrates the violence, but always, I mean, first of all, there's incredible threats of rape, the various emperors, the torturers, they're always threatening to rape these women. And because they're Christian women testifying to their faith in Christ, they don't get raped. You know, the sort of the one thing that does happen all through is the women's bodies remain intact. They get flayed, they get beaten, they get crushed on the wall, they get burned, they get everything, but they don't get raped. And so in a way, the, the, the violence is interestingly mitigated by that fact that no matter what these main torturers and, and, and um, emperors want to do to crush these Christian saints who are all women, that whatever they want to do doesn't really it doesn't hurt the women. I mean, one of the things is this kind of way in which these women rise above these physical tortures because their faith in Christ, that's the standard, the standard narrative because their faith in Christ protects them at a certain level. But it's also very interesting that these are a thousand years old, these stories, when she retells them. They are a standard Christian narrative at this point. They would have been well-known stories in many of the stories, she slightly enhances the of the, the women or adds a little bit of detail to the ways in which they resist authority. She's clearly rooting women to overcome these you know, situations and be triumphant. They are horrific, I agree. But in a way, it's part of this very subtle writing against the grain in that first section where she talks about antiphrasis that if you say one thing, you can mean another. It's like her premise with book three and these, these stories of torture is like, if women are so bad the way the anti-feminists say, how come we have these very authoritative stories of all these women who emperors and, and torturers couldn't break? So I think that there's a triumphant trajectory to those stories, as, as horrific as they are. I also wanted to ask a bit about the story of Griselda. Because today, when, like, I've, I've, I mean, there are, there are organizations and charities set up today to protect women from this relation, type of relationship. Exactly. And yet, Griselda, you know, towards the end, if she just holds in there, if she just holds in one, one more test. Exactly. Exactly. She just, oh, it's horrible. Horrible story, again. But again, um, it's not a story Christine invented. It originates in Boccaccio's Decameron, and where the story is, even if possible, even more gruesome, where the husband who takes on Griselda as this kind of, you know, village wife is even more despicable. Christine knew this text. It was translated. Boccaccio's Decameron had been translated in French, and she knew it in a French um, translation that was in the library, in the, in the Royal Library. So she's working directly with the Boccaccio text. Um, it's also translated into Petrarch and then um, English by Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales, where it's equally awful. It's just as bad in Chaucer as it is in Christine. Well, one of the things, again, it's a very authoritatively received story. And she's using it, as she says, she's using it to show that women are faithful and not faithless, no matter what you throw at them. 
And she very subtly, there's one line in that story where she says, you know, it would have been enough at this point for him to realize that she was going to be true to him. And, you know, she, she, she throws it, she slightly changes the story. She makes the husband a little less gruesome in his enjoyment of torture. And she makes it a little bit less of a story about watching the perversion of it and a little bit more about watching the, the strength of Griselda in the face of these horrible tortures that her husband puts on her to make sure she's true to him and make sure she's, she's constant. I think the key word there is constancy. So again, you know, the fact that these are all very subtle compilations and sometimes very subtle revisions, it makes her point, you know, if the misogynists say women are not constant, they're fickle and they're, they can easily be untrue, you can't get any more constant than Griselda. The payoff is the grander irony that she's using not to show that story as what husbands should do or even what wives should do, how women should be thought of. This might be unanswerable and maybe not even very well articulated, but the, the structure, the dynamic of their relationship, her constancy and her loyalty, despite these repeated tests and brutalities that are inflicted upon her, do you think that women have inherited that on some level in relationships, even today? Well, definitely. I think that story illustrates some of the ways that modern scholars have studied domestic violence and domestic abuse and psychological abuse. I mean, in, in, in the Griselda story, there's no physical violence. It's no, all it's, it's totally gaslighting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I do think that, you know, sociological studies of violence against women in, say, the modern West have highlighted this way in which women are very much with their abuser and identify with their abuse, can, in, in worst case scenarios, not all women all the time, of course. No, of course. And so I do think there's a, a way that that story gets out, you know, I think you're absolutely right, it gets out the possibility of a certain perversion of marriage into abuse under the guise of some other ideal. And that is a pervasive problem. And, you know, the sort of notion of marriage we have in the, in the modern West is inherited from medieval Europe. It's where it kind of comes into its own. It gets, and so the fact that Boccaccio in the um, 14th century would write this kind of narrative and put it together and that it would circulate in French and English and Latin testifies to how much we are still, that we recognize it as a, a kind of clinical version of abuse that we still can um, diagnose. I do think as an example of a, a problematic about um, ideals of marriage that are not that dissimilar from the 14th century to the 21st century. So yes, you're absolutely right. There's a tremendous problematic there. I think she's getting at it as a problem in a way that I'm not sure the male authors who work with it identify at all. So after my modern post-feminist struggle with Christine de Pizan, I have gone from uncertainty and even repulsion to really admiring her and being rather enchanted with the ritualistic, deeply metaphorical stories in this book. And I am rather keen to read more. Perhaps that will be a future episode. 
For this episode, I've just used a portion of our conversation, but there were some interesting ideas that came up more informally after the interview. I will post this later as additional bonus content. If you're interested in learning more about Christine de Pazam, please visit the She Speaks Volumes website at shespeaksvolumes.ca. There you will find a bio, bibliography, and relevant links, as well as access to other episodes and authors in this series. I am really looking forward to the next episode, Dialogue on the Infinity of Love, written by Tulia de Aragona, published in 1547. De Aragona was a courtesan and a poet, renowned for her intellect and wit. It is written in the traditional style of a philosophical dialogue, but de Aragona challenges the conventions of love and sexuality of her time by professing the desires of women to be equal to the desires of men. Part 1 will be posted on September 17th. If you have any comments or feedback on this episode or on the podcast, please email or post on the Facebook page. Links are in the show notes. In the meantime, thank you for listening and please subscribe to be notified as bonus content is posted.